Welcome to the Panic Pod podcast, that podcast where we talk about all things anxiety. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Radha Modgill, practicing GP, medical expert, and esteemed media personality. Uh, Dr. Radha features on Radio One's Life Hacks, makes multiple appearances across the BBC, including the radio and across the mainstream media, passing on expert, expert comments and advice. I am extremely excited to have you on the show hidden by a poor veneer of professionalism. How are you doing this morning? Oh, wow. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. <laughs> not quite sure what to say to it, Pop, and thank you, but I think maybe you've over-egged me. But, but thank you so much for that lovely introduction. It's made my, made my day today. It's so lovely to be on, and thank you so much for asking me to be part of it. Um, I think it's a fantastic podcast, and I'm really uh, – I'm in admiration of you, actually, and your work that you do to help people talk about anxiety and their experiences and share their stories because i think they're the most powerful things in helping each other oh well, thank you let's let's see how much we can make each other feel awkward with flattery so is it true you're still a practicing gp yes that's right yeah so um i work in the nhs the gp um, and then do the, the sort of broadcasting alongside that. And actually, people say to me, oh, they're quite different. But actually, they have lots of similarities in that, um, you know, both roles are very much about communication. Um, both roles are very much um, led by um, my desire to sort of help people empower themselves to kind of go in the direction they want to go in. And um, the the media is, is sort of just a, a more um, creative way, if you like, of getting that message out. And I love also hearing people's stories and their challenges and how they've overcome mm. challenges and, and what we can learn from each other. So they have quite a lot of overlap, actually, as well. Oh, wow, that's brilliant. And, and it's really nice to um, – we were just chatting before we, we pressed rec- record. It's really nice to see that role um, of someone who is a doctor, is a GP, but taking a lot of – interest in kind of emotional well-being I'm not saying doctors don't do that but i think that mm-hmm. from my kind of a lot of people's perspectives doctors have got to um know a little about a hell of a lot and mm-hmm. um and sometimes you know you can't there's just a certain kind of limit i find i did my um dissertation research on um people with anxiety disorders and their experiences of going to the doctor and mm-hmm. it was really interesting because half the experiences were fantastic you know i it was right down the middle 50 percent of people were like yeah my doctor was great it was fantastic they understood it and the other half was like my doctor didn't really get it you know if, if there was something physical they were great but when it came to something kind of anxiety related they didn't quite get it uh what kind of got you into what you know the mental health side of things yeah so um i i think that's an interesting question actually i think so i think as um as a child, I was the youngest of four, and I think as a child, I was um, kind of labelled a bit as the the oversensitive one, and uh, you know, <laughs> the one who kind of worried a lot. And um, and so I think, you know, I think through my own experiences of of that during my sort of childhood years and teenage years, I, you know, I I think I noticed, you know, later on a lot of those sort of negative connotations and that sort of labelling of, oh, you're a worrier or you're oversensitive, and almost it being labelled as a bad thing a negative thing and yeah, actually as, yeah. as I got older I've realized that actually they are real gifts um the gift of empathy the gift of um being aware of other people's feelings and also the gift of being sensitive to emotions and feelings and I think that's probably what started my passion and being interested in it and also I've always been um 
a bit of a sort of well I try to be a bit of a problem solver so if, if people have got a problem I like coming up with solutions and and creative ways to help people and um communicate that to people and I'm very much also interested in community and connection and you know what makes us all come together because I think there's a lot of strength mm. in that so I think those sort of things probably spark my interest in mental health and and also you know I think sometimes when we use the word mental health we um in the terms it's used perhaps in the media or more generally now we forget mm. about the sort of emotional well-being it's all part of the same thing and I think there's a lot of focus on um you know the 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 brain and obviously quite rightly the brain feeds into our emotions but I'm, I'm really keen also on thinking about our general emotional well-being what's our emotional state and and working with emotions as well as as thoughts as a sort of a whole package <laughs> oh that's lovely oh, i love how you've uh, summarized that um you could be my gp if you'd like that would be great uh, that would be absolutely great um i love what, that what you, when you mention um overall well-being uh, also kind of i love how you mentioned about the um sensitivity being something that you should be proud of um i work a lot in my practice with um, obviously emotions relating to anxiety and I work a lot with introjected beliefs mm -hmm. um, and one of my pet peeves is when mm -hmm. you know there's a huge you know emotional conservatism's revered particularly in this country you know keep mm -hmm. calm carry on it's almost ingrained yeah. you know in, in, in within us uh, obviously stemming from a mentality that was needed during the war uh, but it's kind of not, it's kind of redundant now. One of my biggest pet peeves is when, you know, and I hear this a lot from my clients, if people are at a funeral or something, genuinely one of the saddest things that you could do is, you know, wave mm -hmm. goodbye to someone and you start crying and someone turns around and says, don't cry, be strong for your auntie. I was like, mm. what does that even mean? Oh, I know. It really annoys me. Yeah. <laughs> it really annoys me. <laughs> I'll join you in, in, in that one, definitely. I think that is so true. And I think there's been a real mismatch, isn't there, between, um, I mean, I did a I did a, a series, which I'm really proud of, on for CBBS, which is called Feeling Better, which was for mm. preschoolers. And it was me... Um, with two lovely puppets who were a sister and brother singing about emotions and we dealt with an emotion every single episode and that was really to start the idea about emotional intelligence emotional awareness emotional literacy for very young children and I think it stems from that doesn't it that we've divided mm -hmm. traditionally emotions into good emotions and bad emotions in inverted commas you know emotions that are acceptable yeah. that we are allowed to have that we you know we seek out and then emotions that we, you know, try, we're told that we should hide and that we shouldn't have. And they include sadness, anger, fear, you know, um, confusion, um, you know, shame, all those kind of things that we don't like to talk about. And they're seen as bad emotions. And so the message we get is, oh, push them away. Don't talk about them. And therefore, what happens when we don't talk about something? It gets pushed down. It gets avoided. It gets bigger. There's more shame that's covered in it. And then the problems start to occur with our mental health and actually generally not just the individual but as a society we all get impacted mm. by that. I think you're absolutely right every emotion in my mind has a purpose and its purpose mm. is you know to process things to allow us to understand what's happening to grow as individuals and to get through challenges and so I, mm. I'm really a big advocate of saying although these feelings are not nice to feel they feel distressing actually if we're allowed to feel them 
that distress can be reduced and actually we can work through those and we can create a healthier society where we're more honest about how we feel because at the end of the day every one of us has felt anger fear sadness of course mm. we have a human Yeah, I, def- I love that. De- destigmatizing the shame around experiencing emotions, I think, is incredibly important. Otherwise, where does it go? Mm. You know, where does mm. it go? Um, my friend uh, James, you know, half joking, half really says, uh, every time, you know, if we're doing something silly and we have one too many beers, the next day he says, <laughs> the next day he just says, build a wall around it. It never happens. Uh, and, whilst, <laughs> and whilst we laugh, it's a kind of it's kind of an echo actually of a lot of still that attitude that exists in my own friendship groups and things. And these are with really kind of great people. So, you know, it's kind of like, it just goes goes to show how ingrained it is um, still. We've got some work to do. Um, That's Obviously you've done loads of work with the CBBC, um, BBC Bite Size, uh, a lot of working and teaching young people about emotions. Um, How important is it? even so, like, thinking about this, for even adults to be in touch with their emotions. Because I find that actually in, my, in where I work, um, there's a lot of adults that aren't even in touch with their emotions. I'm, eight years ago, I didn't even know what the word anxiety meant. Yeah. You know, and and uh, it's really important. I mean, it's great now and preventative for children. But I think even now for adults, I'm like, you're not even aware that you're angry. Yes, absolutely. No, totally. And again, you know, when we when we sort of focus on children, and young people, obviously, um, there's been a big conversation around that, perhaps more highlighted in terms of that age group because of different pressures that they found, you know, with the online world mm. and that kind of thing. But we, you're right, we mustn't forget, you know, every age and you know, every single age, every single um, person can be affected by their mental health, but also their awareness of their feelings. And you're right. And actually, I think you know, you were talking about earlier sort of um generations where actually those were shut down even more and actually what happens is people get older as they tend to get not always <laughs> obviously it's generalization but unless unless we're open to change we tend to get more rigid in our beliefs in our strategies and our ways of handling things and it's harder sometimes to be open to new ways of thinking so actually mm. potentially they can become that pattern of how we deal with emotions or the fact we're not aware of our emotions can become even more entrenched and turn into depression or or other difficulties so it's it's for absolutely every single one of us to try to be more open for us to help everybody understand about emotions and and their purpose and how we can process them and again so what Mm. I've obviously done a lot of work with young people but also across different age spectrums and I think you know the way um that we approach those conversations, the language you use, the methods of doing that has to be very different for different age groups because they're going to, different audiences will obviously respond to different things. And to help young people, you know, um, older older generations are not separate. They have parents, they have, you know, uncles, aunties, grandparents. <laughs> so again, it's that thing of like, well, if we if we help one, one sort of group of our society with that, you know, there's a flip side about the people around them and the the people who are there supporting them. So we need to do it in conjunction in parallel. Um, you know, we need to help, particularly at the moment, we need to help parents and teachers just as much as we need to help young people because they're part of that family unit. They're part of that unit that works together. And, you know, as a society, you know, I, I went out for a walk this morning 
before I started work. And mm. you know, there were quite a few people walking in the park, um, you know, and perhaps they're of an older age. I, I'm, you know, not making any assumptions, but, you know, you wonder mm. what's going on in that person's life. Are they on their own? Are they, how are they feeling? What are they thinking? And this goes for any age I'm group. I'm glad you think like that too, because I, I, I <laughs> just a smile a wave a chat you know it just who knows what's happening in that person's um, mind or their emotional system you know and I think mm. if we can all try to help each other even with just small gestures particularly at the moment I think it's going to help yeah I like yeah the power of a small gesture mm. um I like um what do you think about kind of modeling ideal behavior it's something i've always stood by so before i was a psychotherapist i worked in a pupil referral unit for um uh children with emotional and behavioral difficulties um and i had my own kind of style and teaching and things um mm-hmm. but i remember one day i was quite i was quite sad because of something that was happening in my personal life and, and i actually shed a tear in front of the children mm. i remember another member of staff going that's not professional and i was like and I actually said, why is it not professional? Mm-hmm. You know, the children mm-hmm. asked me why I was, I wasn't obviously rolling around on the floor in hysterics, <laughs> but I shed a tear. Uh, I shed a tear. And, and the children were like, why are you sharing, shedding tears? I said, because I'm sad, because something at home has uh, upset me. Mm. And it was a really lovely, powerful moment, um, spoiled by the adult. Um, but, <laughs> but it was a really powerful moment. Uh, and actually, it really kind of, I felt that modeling it for the children actually helped them open up about what was happening with them at home. And obviously, you know, you'll find who anyone who works in a pupil referral unit, you know, statistically stuff at stuff at home isn't perhaps ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just thought that what's the, the power of modeling that um, is really important. Um, is that something that you aim to do in, in the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely in, you know, my media work, I'm very keen and um, very honest about, you know, how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, particularly, you know, in the last sort of few months with the, obviously the pandemic, that's been really important. I think it's really mm. more important, actually. And I think also all of us respond better when we feel we're not alone. And so I think, um, you know, by sharing experiences, obviously within reason and within boundaries and according to that individual who, you know, in, in terms of what they need in that moment, I think that helps people to feel not so alone when they see that, you know, all of us can experience these emotions, these problems, these challenges, because again, you know, mental health, um, emotional well-being, you know, when it when it gets into a low place, it, it exacerbates that feeling even more of being alone. It's very isolating. Mm-hmm. So, if we look around ourselves, and let's face it, we're not great as a, in society at being sharing and being honest about our feelings if we look around everyone else seems okay we're like hang on a minute that's just reinforcing mm. this is a problem with me there's something wrong with me and then that creates more obstacles and actually people reaching out for help and saying that they, that they need help and you know particularly mm. children young people they really respond to authenticity and you know like Roald Dahl is one of my favorite authors because in his story <laughs> he deals with yeah. um, he deals with real challenges you know, children who've face loss of parents and you know, diff- difficult things he's really authentic and um the, yeah. best, the best stories the best children's stories that are received are the authentic characters who've been mm. through struggles and children know children pick up we all pick up you know different energy we know something's wrong and if someone's not verbalizing that or helping us understand 
what is wrong or saying there's something wrong, it makes us more scared of it because it's unspoken. Yeah. Uh, and when it's unspoken, we you know, it's like the the scary film. You know, when we don't see the monster, it's more scary. And then when we see the monster, we're like, oh, "That's all right. I know what it. I know what it is now, so I can deal with it." And I think that's very much like you were saying about modelling um, behaviours and actions being louder than words. I think that's really, really important. Mm, yeah, I, I I I like how you you know, you said um, there must be something wrong with me because I perceive everyone else around me as having you know they've got the stuff together they seem and appear okay mm. um, obviously i work a lot with anxiety disorders and the panic pod is about people with anxiety mm. um and, and various anxiety disorders obviously some people kind of have a, an issue with the term disorder but just for for simplicity we'll leave it um mm-hmm. that uh, today but like i it's it's what well, for me personally when i was diagnosed with panic disorder and anxiety disorder seven, eight years ago, one of the main points that relating to what you've just said was that I thought there genuinely was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of the listeners of the podcast will will relate to that. It's a lot easier when someone, particularly someone like yourself, if they're able to turn around and go, you know what, this is okay. This is anxiety. This is normal. Mm-hmm. This is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it may feel like you're going bananas, but you're not. Yeah. You know, um, I wish kind of my GP or someone along that line could have told me earlier because I spent a very years being really quite an- anxious, mm. and something that I felt would have helped is someone just beforehand going, you know what, this is all right. We've not all got our stuff together. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you, that ties in nicely with what you, you said. If everyone's a bit more open about what they they're feeling, and and there's a there's a culture where it's okay to do that, you could. I think there's a lot of pre- prevention that you can do there. Yes, a hundred percent. Like you say, I think that you know, because when when we feel like there's something wrong with us, and you know, when I when I see patients, they come in about their mental health. You know, often for the first time, they're telling someone. The first thing they say, yeah. well, the very frequent thing they say is, "Um, it's only me. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me." you know, everyone else is okay. Very frequent people say. And what I tend Mm. to tell people is, you're the second person who said that to me today, or you're the third person who's come to see me about anxiety today. Because that's not to um, take away anything from how they're feeling. It's actually to say to them, you're not on your own. Other people have felt this way. Because when we feel like there's something wrong with us, like I say, it builds obstacles for us reaching out for support, but also it has a very detrimental effect on our self-esteem and our self-esteem is really our belief about ourselves uh, you know our beliefs about mm. ourselves that perhaps are not our own we've taken those on board from other people as we've grown up or we've we've heard things people have said about us and so I think self-esteem is not spoken about enough either in terms of its power and its ability and using it as um having tools to improve our self-esteem and that actually I think would really help all of us reach out for support with our mental health. Um, if we if we work on self esteem as a really important, uh, not a concept, it's a really important part of who we are, and it's it's actually a vehicle, I think, to to us mm-hmm. getting the help that we need, what we think about ourselves and who we are. And I'm really keen on encouraging people to speak about self esteem and, and and how we can actually help people with that as well.
Yeah, oh, that, that, yeah, because it's, I mean, it's really refreshing to hear that. Um, and, and particularly from from a doctor, a GP as well. It's lovely. I think it's really important. Uh, I just wanted to kind of just shift on to the, the subject of um, doctors. Do, I mean, do you think there's a lot of pressure on doctors to know all the answers, you know, beyond the world of physical ailments? Now, I've, I've worked a lot of, with a lot of people with anxiety, and I've heard a lot of kind of disappointment from from my clients where you know they've had a high expectations from their doctors to understand what's happening with them mm. and they feel like they're kind of and i'm not making a blanket statement uh, but mm. kind of like some some they feel it i hear a mixture some people doctors get it like like yourself like i said I, i'd love for you to be my doctor that would be amazing. <laughs> um but but, uh, but uh, um but you know and i just think it because I was, I was reading um i just finished reading adam Kay's book about oh, was, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which I love, um, but he was talking about the 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 day to day pressure of being a doctor anyway. But then also him kind of it, within the book he talks about playing counselor to one of his friends, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, "Well, I don't even feel qualified for this." And it just made me think. Actually, a lot of the first point of call for anxious people, particularly people with anxiety disorders, they go to the doctor. And I'm just wondering if there's kind of some unfair expectations. Do you think there's a lot of pressure on doctors to know all the answers? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think you know, as a as a GP, you do you know you do have to know a lot about everything, <laughs> and you have to have <laughs> knowledge about um, you know when to step things up, and you know kind of levels of treatment, and when to ask for specialist help as well. You know what you can manage and what you can't manage. Obviously, in primary care. Um, I think mm. I think um, there's traditionally, and I think you know, in society traditionally, as we've been talking about, we've you know we've been very good at physical health. You know, we've been you know we we've spoken about physical health for you know for decades. I think it's only been really we, we're still playing catch up with mental health as a society, and also you know that goes across mm-hmm. the board when it comes to obviously healthcare workers and doctors. You know. Uh, different generations of doctors you know had different training for example at medical school you know that that those medical schools now have obviously changed and updated um and so you will you know you will find a spectrum you also find a spectrum of different how how different um doctors uh, handle things um as, as individuals that obviously needs to be more standardized and um mm-hmm. and I, i'm also i'm really keen on obviously encouraging that in terms of the profession um for gps uh, but also on the other side of that actually making sure gps are also getting um support for their mental and emotional well-being because again you can only give what you have yourself and you know being uh, seeing patients um you know all the time you know having different pressures at home like we all have we we need to make sure that you know everyone who's helping patients actually gets that support themselves so they are in the right place to help their patient um you know preventing emotional burnout preventing professional burnout all those things are really important and you know there's been a you know great campaign um started recently about you know our front line which has been set up by quite a few charities to help front frontline workers from the effect of their mental health but more broadly you know how they're coping and managing um because we like I say we can only give what we have ourselves and I think that's really important to to put in place for, for doctors and, and all people who work in a public facing role with a with with patients. 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's really important, and um, I like I like how you know it's when you encapsulate well-being as as the whole picture, you know, uh, preventing mm. burnout, uh, in particular. Um, in my in my second book, I talk about the three core statements of anxiety. Um, uh, I was going to quiz you on one actually. And I know the, 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 the three core, the three core <laughs> statements of anxiety. The first one is "What if?" You know, and I think we can all relate mm. to that. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that catastrophe happens? Mm. You know, what if this recording cuts out halfway through <laughs> and I end up throwing my laptop out of the window? Um, that's number one, and people can familiar with that. Number two is "I can." you know, which perpetuates avoidance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do it. I can't cope. I can't do that. I might have a panic attack, so I can't do that. Um, and people can relate to that if, if people um, are highly anxious and avoidant. Mm -hmm. I've been doing lots of work in, with newspapers recently about agoraphobia, so there's lots of mm -hmm. I, I can't. Uh, but the last one is the most insidious one, and everyone at some on some level – has, has a relationship with this one. And the third core statement of anxiety is, I should, you know, mm -hmm. I should do this, I should do that, mm -hmm. I should have loads of to-do lists to do, I should finish this, I should oh, do yeah. that, I should complete I should complete a project. I was just going to ask you, what's your relationship <laughs> with the word should? Oh, it's probably probably not a great one, actually, if I'm honest. <laughs> but it's one I'm aware of and one that I'm working on, which is uh, a step forward, it's a first step, isn't it? So, so yeah, I think you know, I, I'm a big fan of um, of uh, someone called Louise Hay, who has passed away now. I don't know if you're um, familiar with her, but she, um, she's an author. She's she's an incredible um, uh, person who was very involved in um, supporting patients who had um, HIV and AIDS um, when it when it first came to light. And she and she's written incredible mm. books about affirmations and self esteem and self confidence. And one, I watched a video of hers on YouTube and where she says, you know, the one word that she would ban is should because the very Ooh. word should, this is all Louise Hay. I cannot take credit for this. <laughs> She's an amazing woman. The word should automatically implies that you are already wrong and you've already failed and you've already not managed something. And so she, her, her line was very much change that should into could. So when you have a statement, oh, oh, I should go for a run. I should, you know, finish this project. If you change that into, I could go for a run. Now that's got a very different flavor, a very different energy. That's got a dynamic energy and open energy. That sounds energy. like me. I'm not going to lie. I could go for a run. <laughs> <laughs> an energy, energy of enjoyment as opposed to an energy of punishment, blame, um, being wrong. So I think, you know, I think I should is very much part of, part of that and I you know I I am I hold my hands up I am you know I do think to myself oh, I should do this should do that um I'm getting better at, at noticing when I think that and I'm getting better mm. at um at sort of saying to myself look what you're doing is absolutely fine right now and being gentle and kind to yourself and, and again that's another along with self-esteem that's nothing I'm very keen on is actually really kind important. and we use that term as a very People are like, oh, kind to yourself. What does that mean? And you're right. We need to make it more tangible. We need to make that mm. kindness into much more of a tangible, practical activity that actually has people can see the positive outcome and benefit your mental health. At the moment, we tend to use that word as a very sort of soft word. Or you know, be kind to yourself. You know, mm. we need to make it into a 
kindness is work on your self-esteem what does that even mean (laughs) well exactly when we when we don't help people understand what it means in practical terms and also we don't help people make the link between doing it and the benefits people don't do it so we need to make that more kindness more tangible in terms of the science behind it the benefits and also how you do that and actually what it can do for your mental health and that's really important so i'm, I'm working on that but i'm, I'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not i haven't uh, i haven't finished that, yeah. that, one. Yeah, that was it yeah i definitely i, I kept, catch people out of it and I, i've asked it from you know the assumption that i've mastered it i've really not i'm terrible at it Until I, uh, until I can feel myself getting really stressed and then I go, nope, yeah. now is the time to wind it back yeah, a little bit, exactly. which I did yesterday. Um, which I did yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah, talking about kind of being kind to yourself, I wanted to ask you about, you know, I was thinking about something called you know, I- idealistic relaxation. And there's something that that kind of comes up with some of my clients and stuff. Not knowing how to relax. Um, there's an ideal that we often see in social media mm-hmm. and TV and things about, you know, you've got people doing mindfulness, floating in midair, doing <laughs> yoga poses that, that just, you know, these kind of things, you know, aligning chakras, all these kind of things. And um, I, I think it, for me personally, I think it kind of perpetuates a kind of, kind of negative view about what relaxation actually means i think it turns into more of a technique that we can fail at Mm -hmm. so i hear a lot from my clients oh i tried mindfulness and it made me feel worse well if you've got panic attacks it will make you feel worse Mm -hmm. you know um i tried yoga but you know i pulled my back muscle and now i'm sat eating pringles (laughs) you know i can't do that yeah but for me my relaxation is really kind of simple you know i will just sit there i'll play um, i'll turn into a kid i just play computer games i watch rubbish tv um i'll just i'll just that for me is my relaxation what's your view on kind of relaxation for the individual and um, compared to kind of this ideal relaxation don't get me wrong it works for people that's why people do it but i think you know with the for the everyday joe what's kind Mm. of ideal relaxation i think that's such a good question actually because i think like you say relaxation has almost become a perfectionist sort of shiny concept you know oh relax you know this is how you relax this it's, is what shiny. It is. Yeah, it's shiny it's shiny oh, yeah i'm not yeah. a very shiny person i'm the kind of person who you know when they put tights on ladders them straight away you know <laughs> there's nothing shiny about me and actually i i don't really trust shiny things either because i question that <laughs> um, so. i like that i don't i don't trust shiny no, I don't. No, I don't. Because I think you know, when something's shiny, it's you know, there's not a lot of reality in it, and not a lot of authenticity. So I think you're right. I think you know, when we talk about relaxation, it is really important. It's actually vital, but we, it's important we don't make it into a concept which is unobtainable, um, a, a perfectionist type view, um, an ideal that is just you know out of this world, and also something that is not specific to us as individuals. So, like you say, we're all different. We all find different things relaxing. You know, one person's, um, you know, idea of relaxation would be totally different to another person's. So, you know, making it specific to you. And I think you raise an excellent point, which I love, 
which is all about going back to what you enjoyed and how you relaxed when you were young. Because, um, you know, we're all, we're, we're adults, but we still have that kind of inner child. And that inner child is oh, very wise. We should be adults. We should. Oh, be. yeah, we should be. We I, shouldn't I, be doing it. Yeah, I know. I know. We shouldn't <laughs> be enjoying ourselves. And you see it. You see this in the terminology of, you know, mindful coloring books. Now, I don't get me wrong. I think it's great to start introducing these ideas back to people who've forgotten about how to do things they enjoy. But, but the very terminology, the very fact we have to couch it in, in sort of language, the language we use for adults relaxing is very different yeah. to play. You know, why can't we use the word play with adults? You know, mm. why do we have to kind of couch it in these terms? Okay, it might be that we, you know, we won't engage with it otherwise, and that's fine. But it's very interesting how a lot of us have forgotten what we enjoy, how we relaxed when we were little. So I would say go back to what really made your heart sing, what you really loved when you were a child growing up and start doing those things don't put pressure on yourself to relax I must relax this is my relaxation time if I don't relax then I'm I'm not doing it well you know <laughs> you know yeah. it, it's important just to just to play discover don't have an outcome get creative you know and forget about the pressure to relax which sounds ridiculous but it is there isn't it um oh yeah definitely um I I um I love that here here it's kind of when I often, that often comes up, I'll ask some of my clients in practice, I'll say, what did you do as a child or when you were younger to chill out? And they'll be like, oh, I used to sing, I used to draw, I used to paint. And then I say the very simple question, why did you stop? Mm-hmm. And then this word should comes up, this false ideal. And, and it's quite interesting just observing someone say that out loud and they go, actually, that's stupid, isn't it? Why did I stop? Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, which is just quite interesting. But it's because we're um, messages, aren't we, from society that an adult is serious and they you know, must work and everything they do must be productive and have an outcome. And so we start to believe mm. that and then we, we don't prioritise play. We prioritise what we think we should do and then we lose enjoyment and we get burnt out. And then one day we wake up and we're like, hang on a minute, how come I can't relax? <laughs> But the good news is, is that it's not too late. You you've got it in you. It's just a matter of starting it and just reengaging with that. And it, and that's the sort of you know that sort of skill of playing comes back really easily. Mm, mm. Um, you may have noticed, listeners uh, at home, that the esteemed co-host Ella Jean isn't here today um, because she doesn't care about it. It wasn't <laughs> worth her time. And, and nothing to do with the fact that it's 3 a.m. in yeah, Canada. It's, it's my fault because I can do evening. Yeah. So sorry, Ella. <laughs> sorry. Sorry about <laughs> No, I just thought she, she, she'll, she'll enjoy that. She did, however, uh, obviously, um, I won't keep you for too long, but she did leave a question for you. Uh, Ella says, uh, you look amazing and you're really successful. And we were talking about imposter syndrome on a previous show um and ella asks in your journey have you ever felt imposter syndrome and what did you do to help yourself now you could just get out of that and say no i didn't thanks ella (laughs) no because i speak the truth so (laughs) great question ella and yes 100 percent, i have definitely had imposter syndrome and and still do in in certain situations absolutely and i think if everyone's being honest Everyone has that too, actually. Um, I was speaking to a friend who is starting a new project as an artist, and um, as she was, she was 
about to launch her sort of new website and very, very much had that. When she was creating and painting, she very much was just in the flow of it and enjoying it. And as soon as she had an outcome or she thought about being judged, she kind of clammed up. And she, we were talking about imposter syndrome then. So yes, I've definitely had it. I still have it. Um, what do I do to get over it? I um, am very fortunate in that I get lovely messages from people saying that things that I'm doing are helping them. And that makes me um, kind of get my feet back on the ground. Um, but also, I think actually the way, the real way I get over it is I say to myself, if I'm frightened about doing something or scared, I recognize that feeling and that imposter syndrome coming up. And I say to myself, okay, fine, you're scared, you're fearful about it. But what about the flip side of that coin? What if you didn't do it? How would you feel then? And you would regret it. And that mm. feeling for me is worse than the fear or the imposter syndrome. So I'm like, okay, well, if that, the, the alternative is worse, I'm going to just go, go ahead mm. and do it because I, I, I want to choose the best option, even though it's challenging. And the other tool I find really useful in that imposter syndrome is forgetting all about um, other people, other people's judgments and actually focusing on your core message why is it that I'm doing the stuff that I do It's because I want to help people and I want to empower people and I want to um, help people realize they can make changes. And I think when I come back to that core message and I forget all of the other layers of judgment and worry and how will I come across, I'm like, who needs to hear this today? And that's really what helps me overcome that imposter syndrome. I just forget all about the other stuff and I just focus on on what I would like to get out there and what I'd like to do and um, to help people. So that's such good advice. Um, I was making a note for myself. <laughs> you know, what's going to what's going to feel worse? You know, you you stewing in bed because you didn't kind of yeah, push yourself forward, or you know, kind of just that that temporary avoidance. Mm. Um, thank you so much, Doctor Radit, for coming on the Panic Pod today. I won't keep you for any longer. Um, you covered some really lovely topics today. Um, I'm really excited to kind of get this aired out of there. Um, if anyone at home um, wants to find out more, then go and find Dr. Rada Modgill on social media. Go find her on Instagram. Go find her on all that. Uh, on, and go and see what she's up to. Tune into her shows that she has. Um, also, And also, while you're there, Follow us on Instagram. Come on, what's Absolutely. the point? Yeah. I got I got I got to plug myself. Follow us. Never mind, Doctor Rada. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the lovely thing about um about sort of social media is you can use it for a force for good, and you can connect with platforms and people that that help you and um and build a lovely community. And, um, you know, thanks for having me on. It's been amazing. And I just, I think my final message to everyone who's listening is, you know, you're not on your own and please, please reach out for support and, and be kind to yourself and, and realize that everyone else is, is also, or has experienced some of the things that you're going through as well. And, and, you know, you can, you can take comfort in that and solidarity in that as well. They're lovely, weren't you? Thank you very much. This has been the Panic Pod. We'll catch you next time.